On this week's TribCast, we talk about Trump's move to end birthright citizenship and his decision to send more troops to the border, the latest candidate in the Texas House Speaker's race, midterm voter turnout, and straight ticket voting problems in Texas. But before we dive in, I'd like to thank this week's sponsors. The Texas Living Water Project. A future without fresh water is no future at all. Make a difference. Start by learning about more about best bets for Texas water at texaslivingwaters.org. And the Association of Rural Communities in Texas, an educational association exclusively for rural and smaller communities and dedicated only to rural Texas. Learn more at arcit.org. Hello, this is Emily Ramshaw here on Halloween with your Texas Tribune Tribcast, our weekly Texas politics and policy podcast. I'm joined this week by reporter Patrick Svitek. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Reporter Alex Samuels. Happy to be here. Hey, Alex. And reporter Alexa Ura. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. We're also going to be fielding your questions via social media every week, so be sure to send them our way using the hashtag Tribcast. All right, I want to start with some of the biggest news of the week, President Trump's aggressive move to further militarize the U.S.-Mexico border and to say he's going to put an end to birthright citizenship. So, Alexa, let's start with the latter. What is birthright citizenship and could he actually end it? So birthright citizenship is um, a, it's enshrined in the U.S. Constitution and the 14th Amendment, to be specific. Which um, should make it kind of tricky to do away with it. You would think. Um, but it basically guarantees that anyone um, who is born in the U.S. is a U.S. citizen, regardless of your parents' citizenship status, regardless of how long they've been in the country, and regardless of whether they even live in the country. As long as you're here, you've got it. And Donald Trump this week announced that he was pondering an executive order to change that. I don't think it's a new position for for the president, I think what's, you know, what's been confusing to some folks is his plans to do this through an executive order. Got it. Uh, meanwhile, the border surge, Trump is deploying some 5,200 troops, military, helicopters, and giant spools of razor wire to the Mexican border to do what exactly, Patrick? Yeah, I mean, he says this is in response to this migrant caravan that is heading north, uh, still pretty far away from the U.S.-Mexico border. From Hundreds of miles last, still, yeah. <laughs> <last check. laughs> Our um, colleague but, Jay Root know, has been with them. The president yeah. and, and other Republicans in Texas, too, clearly latching on to this issue in the home stretch before the midterm elections, uh, you know, trying to create a sense of urgency and, and fear um, about this, this caravan. And I think that you obviously see uh, this move kind of in the same vein, I think, to, to send these troops to the border. Well, let's talk about the politics behind either of these moves. Uh, I mean, obviously, you know, this birthright citizenship question is something that seems to be defined in the Constitution. This migrant caravan, there is no evidence that these folks who are moving here are moving, you know, northward are dangerous, even though Trump is calling them invaders. I mean, what's, what is the political play here? I mean, I think Republicans realize at the end here that immigration um, I can just speak specifically for Texas, but I'm sure Donald Trump views this as a national issue as well, but that immigration is a you know, big uh, motivator for the Republican base and, and, and re has remained one throughout this election cycle. I mean, we just did a poll uh, where it was very clear that by and large, either immigration or border security were the top issues for Texas Republicans. And so I think that you know, Texas Republicans, national Republicans are looking at the same numbers and, and seeing how much of a uh, motivator this is for Republican base voters. Yeah, I don't think either of these uh, initiatives, if you can call them that, put them, you know, in any way at odds with their electorate. Mm -hmm. And I do think the the birthright citizenship 
conversation has been interesting to see the reactions from some of the top elected officials, particularly Greg Abbott, the governor, you know, Ken Paxton, the attorney general, and even Ted Cruz, who have Ted Cruz back in 2011 said, you know, he really didn't think that the arguments against birthright citizenship would hold up, you know, and he said that as someone who was solicitor general and argued before the Supreme Court. Um, More he, recently, he's taken kind of a different yeah. stance, right? Cruz. Yeah, well, this came up back in the 2016 presidential campaign when Trump first started talking about it. And this was one of those, you know, classic instances during the 2016 primary where Trump you know, rolled out or started floating some incendiary proposal, and then all the other Republican primary candidates had to quickly make a decision whether to follow suit, whether to distance themselves, whether to criticize Trump, and how to navigate that. And at the time, Cruz, uh, you know, I think, from what I recall, I think we had a story about it at the time, uh, you know, Cruz came out and, you know, said that, yeah, I, I agree that we need to end birthright citizenship. And that, as far as I know, has been the position he's maintained up until this day. Now, based on remarks uh, that I've heard from him on the campaign trail over the past several months, and then more recently in reaction to yesterday's news, um, he doesn't seem to be entirely on the same page with the president in terms of ending right. it using an executive order. Uh, but in terms of being against birthright citizenship, um, I think that's been a position Cruz has held for a number of years now. Yeah, I mean, I think I remember seeing, I think, the first comments that Greg Abbott made at a campaign event right. in which he said, you know, I haven't looked at the law and... You know, if you're talking about the 14th Amendment part of the law, that's definitely a part of the law that Texas is well aware of. It's been found to have violated the 14th Amendment multiple times through the court systems. Um, but this is the former attorney general. Exactly. The, right, the governor. <laughs> right. Um, but, you know, on the executive order part, I think it, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out because this is also a governor whose attorney general, with his attorney general, sued the Obama administration over their use of executive orders mm -hmm. to change laws, obviously not to amend the Constitution, but to change laws. And so, you know, it'll... I don't know how you sort of set this up to say that this form of executive order might be okay, but the executive order that implemented DACA wasn't, especially if that one wasn't amending the U.S. Constitution. Yeah, just looking at these two events, the, the caravan, the federal response to it, and then this birthright citizenship uh, debacle, um, I'm not quite as sure that as a, just as a raw political matter that the birthright citizenship thing worked out in the way that some folks may have intended it to. And I, I, some folks meaning the president. <laughs> well, it was, it was ruled Wonderful. out as part of a, yeah. I don't know when that interview was done, but it was published as part of an interview. With Axios. Uh, with Axios yeah. uh, Tuesday morning. But it, it seemed very quickly the national conversation to shift from not necessarily the concept of birthright citizenship, but to this question of whether it can be done via executive order, whether it's actually in the Constitution or not, which uh, I think ended up making some Republic, putting some Republicans on the spot and not really working out in their favor politically. You, you point to someone like Greg Abbott, who initially seemed kind of, uh, you know, not caught off guard, but he, I mean, or I guess caught off guard, said he hadn't read all about it, about the, the, the legal stuff behind it, ended up kind of clearing up his view at the end of the day. But in terms of a political issue. I don't know if it really ended up working out, at least in yesterday's news cycle, right. uh, in, in favor of Republicans. Yeah, we ended up, I think we polled the entire Texas congressional delegation, all 38 members, and like, you know, on this birthright citizenship question and Trump's designs on an executive order. And like, the responses we got were overwhelmingly Republicans declining to respond to our <laughs> question, which, you know, if the border surge, if this was meant to be a one-two punch, like border surge, you know, we see at these Trump rallies when he talks about these caravan of invaders, you know, that there, there are such loud cheers and there's such desire to sort of, you know, quote unquote, stop them. But I think this birthright citizenship 
question sort of had an, um, not the, maybe the desired effect. Particularly if you look at the electorate and if you look you know, at the number of people living in this country who are either the descendants of or them themselves, you know, people who are citizens here because of birth, birthright citizenship, so. Yeah, and I think, you know, sort of the, the political rhetoric around invasion is not new to Texas. Dan Patrick used it in his 2014 run for lieutenant governor. But, you know, sort of putting the politics aside, as someone who grew up on the border and whose childhood home is, you know, a couple of blocks from a park that sort of borders the actual river between U.S. and Mexico, the idea of this scale of militarization is incredibly jarring. You know, you grow up sort of used to seeing you see Border Patrol around, you see customs, you see obviously your regular police department, but the idea of having active duty soldiers on the border is, you know, I think will be sort of somewhat shocking to people who live in these communities and who have seen a ramp up of a sort of militarization, but not to this extent. Mm -hmm. Tammy asks on social media, do we know how much money sending these troops to the border is going to cost the, the federal government? Um, not yet. And in a story that our colleagues Julian and Teo wrote this morning, um, you know, the Texas elected officials seem to be in the dark about this, and there's no idea about how this much how much this will actually cost taxpayers. And this is a this is a fully federal initiative, right? I mean, this isn't Texas State Guard or anything like that. We've had you know previous deployments in specifically in Texas, but this is a fully federal initiative. As far as I know, yeah. That's what we've been told, at least. Yeah. Yep. All right. Sounds good. Uh, well, next topic, uh, Alex, I want to talk to you about the latest news out of the speaker's race in Texas. Uh, we got uh, like a double whammy of news this week. First, we heard that State Representative John Zerwas, a more sort of moderate Republican, kind of in the mold of outgoing speaker Joe Strauss, was dropping his bid. Why was he dropping his bid? Um, so Zerwas' announcement came uh, around the time of a me meeting Sunday where roughly 40 Republicans met and part of the goal of that meeting, uh, which we reported on Sunday with our colleague Cassie, was to recruit Dennis Bonin to uh, throw his hat in the ring to run for speaker. So he has, I don't think Zeros has said publicly whether he's throwing his support behind Bonin, but it did come around the same time that that was happening. And then, of course, two days after that meeting, Dennis Bonin, who also was a top Strauss lieutenant and chairman of the House uh, Ways, and Means, Ways and Means Committee, uh, announced that he was going to run for speaker. Um, he said he was heeding the support uh, you know, heeding the message of his colleagues, wanted to run, and, you know, isn't it? And we've heard that he's, you know, traveling around the state talking to members. Uh, I think we reported in yesterday's blast that he's meeting with Democrats uh, the day after the election. And so he's kind of making his rounds just like every other speaker candidate has done so far. Who, so who were the 40 GOP House members trying to draft him? And if you're identifying them, would they be more moderate, more conservative? Like, what are they trying to accomplish? Um, I think it's it was a mix of members from what I've heard, uh, maybe more so on the moderate side. We did see reports that the Freedom Caucus members were kind of exiled from uh, these talks. Uh, you know, maybe some members were uh, present, some weren't, but uh, it seems to be more of the more moderate center-right members who were uh, looking to draft Bonin. So what's Bonin's, and I know all of you are familiar with him, what's Bonin's, <laughs> tell me about Bonin's reputation in the chamber and, you know, what was, what's the reaction of journalists when they hear <laughs> that Dennis Bonin might be uh, in the running? I mean, I think from an entertainment perspective, mm -hmm. the idea of Dennis Bonin facing off with Dan Patrick um, is one that I think would make some folks, uh, you know, excited to cover the session. Um, but, you know, there, I was reading a story by uh, Juliana Aguilar and, um, 
Haman Bathija from 2015, in which they profiled Bonin, and it opens with this sort of scene where Bonin goes to the Senate after confronting Dan Patrick over those his border funding bill. Um, and you know, I think the the lead of it is all he needed was a Letterman jacket of sort of how cocky he was <laughs> facing a foe after sort of a public spat like that. And I mean, I think. In the speaker's role, he'd probably, you would think, would maybe change that. But I think the hope for some is probably that he wouldn't. Right. Yeah. yeah. Patrick, what's your sense on this? Yeah, I mean, I think his reputation is kind of a hard-nosed operator within the House. I think that ideologically, he's not as moderate as, as, as Strauss is slash was, would maybe uh, be a little more toward the ideological center of the caucus. Um, I think there were definitely, if, if past is any <laughs> indication of the future, there would definitely be tensions with uh, Dan Patrick. I think what remains unknown, though, is, you know, Strauss was someone who appointed Democrats as chairs of committees who, you know, obviously they were all still Republican majority committees. But, you know, when you're thinking about the dynamics of the chamber in that way, I don't quite know. You know, it'll be interesting to see what the Democrats can push for, if anything, if their numbers do go up or if they have a little bit more leverage when they come back in January. Right. I mean, obviously, the Democrats are hoping that in November, you know, there's there's certainly in Texas no way that the Democrats take the House in a state like this, but the Democrats do have hope that their numbers will increase to a level where they maybe, you know, demand a little more clout. Is there a sense that Dennis Bonin could be a consensus candidate that Democrats would get behind him? I think that's uh, to be determined right now. I mean, he hasn't met uh, with... The Democratic caucus, like every other uh, speaker candidate has done so far, again, he's slated to do that, I believe, the day uh, right after Election Day. So then we'll know how many Democrats are gonna, going to be in the House and how big their role will be in selecting the next speaker. So if Democrats pick up anywhere between, you know, 7 to 15 seats, which some Democrats are optimistic that they can do, um, <laughs> to be TBD if that yeah, will right. actually happen. <laughs> um, then, you know, we'll see if they can coalesce behind him or if they'll kind of uh, divvy up and go behind other speaker candidates that have already declared. With, with Zerwas out of the race, I'm just asking you because you've been, you've been following it so closely, are there any Republican speaker candidates left who did not vote for or were absent for SB4? Or is um, I right. think... I know I, that's been talked about as something of yeah. a... Maybe it's been overhyped, but something... Or you mean for the Schaefer, the Schaefer Amendment? Amendment not yeah, the Schaefer Amendment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I believe for Price okay. did not vote or was not present for the Schaefer Amendment. I mean, what does any of this mean for the remaining candidates who have thrown their names in? So Zerwas is out, you know, obviously we have Eric Johnson, the lone, is he the lone Democrat? He's the lone Democrat. Yes, yeah. He did say earlier this week that he is staying in the race. He said, Bonin's plans do not affect me at all. <laughs> Good luck. How many Democrats do we actually think would even, are even pledging any, <laughs> right. you know, amount of support toward that bid? And so, I mean, is there anybody else you, uh, of the, the list of people who are currently still running, is there anybody else who who might be a consensus candidate who Democrats would be, you know, mobilized or motivated to get behind if push came to shove? You know, I think one of the things that I've heard just over, not, from, you know, specific to the race, but generally is that for Price is someone who is generally liked by Democrats. Um, you know, that you could see that, you could see the avenue in which he might attempt a sort of Strauss-like run, get all the Democrats behind him, you know, make up the difference with a couple of Republicans. Obviously, we won't know how many he would need until November 7th or the night of November 6th. But, you know, I suppose that that's not out of the realm of possibility still, but I just don't know if, you know, given how much flack Strauss got for the way he got into his 
position of power, I don't know that you can recreate that in this political environment. And then there's also the December 1st meeting where the Republican caucus is set to meet and coalesce behind a single candidate. Yeah, I was just going to ask you about that. So the significance of, of you know, Bonin coming out and running at this point, what happens December 1st? Uh, what are the sort of logistics at play there? I think the plan is still for them to meet, coalesce behind a single candidate. I just think this subcommittee of 40 or so Republicans meeting uh, this past Sunday is saying, you know, you know, we had our own meeting and we're going into this December 1st meeting already behind this one candidate type of thing. Um, it could change very much. Um, come December 1st, they could all decide to throw their support behind someone else. Um, and it's also an open field. Someone could stand up December 1st and say, you know what, I want to throw my hat in the ring for speaker and then see where it goes from there. So It's also the sort of thing where come whatever the first day of session is, I don't even want to think about it yet, um, <laughs> where someone could still try to maneuver a run then, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, they're not actually obliged to stick with whoever they decide yeah. on, on December 1st. Right, mm -hmm. this isn't binding, correct? This is not a binding thing, no. I mean, and it's just remarkable to think that, that the meeting <laughs> of the caucus is a, a month away from today. Right, exactly. Uh, and I think so much has changed so how, fast. At least yeah. publicly uh, quiet and... Uh, low action this speaker's race has been. I think it was October 2017 when Strauss announced his retirement. We've seen some folks obviously get in, one person get out. Uh, but it, I mean, I have a feeling that as soon as the elections are over, there's going to be a, probably a flurry of more public activity, I would imagine. Yeah. I mean, Phil King filed like ages ago. Right. <laughs> Before like Strauss even said. Ago. Well, I mean, I do think it's significant that Zerwas got out so quickly, you know, in light of this Bonin news. Obviously, you have to believe that those two things are related. But to me, that signifies that they have chosen Bonin as the sort of consensus moderate candidate, quote unquote, moderate candidate, which is interesting, as Alexa said, because, you know, he hasn't he's, he's probably considered to be further to the right than than Strauss was. But it, that's an interesting move on Zerwas's part, I think. So, uh, All right. Well, before our next topic, I'd like to thank two more TribCast sponsors. The Texas Farm Bureau, prepared by our past to focus on our future. Texas Farm Bureau plows forward, leaving a lasting legacy and cultivating a prosperous tomorrow as the voice of Texas agriculture. Learn more at texasfarmbureau.org. And the Texas Rural Water Association, which assists water and wastewater systems to ensure rural Texans have access to safe and clean, sustainable water. Learn more at trwa.org. All right, let's talk about voting. There has been a lot of voting going on in Texas, and I want to wade into something uh, that's been a super hot topic on the interwebs in the last week, and that's <laughs> this idea that there have been reported problems with sort of automatic vote switching for folks who are voting straight ticket uh, at certain types of machines in Texas. Alex, uh, start by filling us in. What's going on with these machines? Sure. So some folks in Texas were reporting that when they would vote straight tickets, some, you know, something of a curious thing would happen when they would review their final selection of candidates. They would see that someone from the opposing party was picked. A lot of this was happening in the Texas Senate race um, between Ted Cruz and Beto O'Rourke. Um, essentially, with the Secretary of State's website and these Hart e-slate voting machines, which are the voting machines in question, what they both said is that this is a result of user error. Um, the machines cannot flip or switch votes. They're saying what's happening is essentially with these machines, there is a selection wheel and an enter button and an enter button. And they're saying that people are either pressing and using two of these buttons at once, or they're moving too fast before the machine has time to render. So that's why votes are switching. Um, this hasn't been widespread reported. Uh, I think the Texas Secretary of State said over the weekend, they've heard of you know less than 20 cases of where this has happened. Um, but it's still something worth 
looking into. Right. I mean, I guess the, the and the question that sort of I've seen so much drama around is like, is it really user error if the design of the machines is bad or if the technology, you know, does, can't account for this? You know, there are lots of folks in the like user experience world who are basically saying like, why doesn't Texas have more user-friendly technology? I mean, Alexa, why doesn't Texas have more user-friendly technology? Right. The, the thing that this has highlighted is the fact that our machines are incredibly old and that there has been no concerted effort by the state government to help improve those machines. I mean, we're talking about technology from early 2000 era, um, even, even counties that are using sort of touchscreen, like, this is not iPad touchscreen, this right. is like Palm Pilot touchscreen, <laughs> where you have to recalibrate it with your little stylus and you know do the little yeah, it's cross. Like the digital version of a rotary phone, Yes, basically. it's incredibly old technology, and anyone who's voted in Travis County has used these machines that you know take a very long time sometimes to load up the next screen. Um, so I think what this what this whole debate about these machines has highlighted is that we live in a state where one, the Secretary of State's office is really more so an advising agency. It doesn't actually have enforcement power over any of the local counties, which actually run elections. The second part is that state lawmakers have not put any money toward replacing these machines, which for a lot of counties are is is financially impossible. You know, the, the federal government gave Texas about, I think it's $24 million in um, Help America Vote Act money um, meant to sort of improve election administration. And the, the Secretary of State's office very quickly said, this is not enough to cover replacing machines. And so we're going to focus on cybersecurity things and what have not. But, you know, if, if your complaint is that these machines are old and that the state should do something about it, you know, this is not something that counties can afford. And by the looks of it, the state is not willing to put money toward improving these machines. <laughs> and ironically enough, we won't have straight ticket voting in Texas after this. After Election. This cycle. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> <good point. laughs> Maybe the problem goes away <laughs> right. when people are actually like forced to that enter. That was like their backdoor way of dealing <laughs> yeah. with these problems. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Right. I mean, coincidentally, it seems like this has gotten a lot of attention because it's happening for the most often, I think it has happened for the highest profile race, which mm. is the Senate which race. Which is also at the top of the ballot. Because yeah. it's at the very top of the ballot, right? Mm. There's nothing nefarious at foot or at play there. Um, is this happening equal? I've seen the loudest noise, uh, you know, from Democrats who are basically like, look, if it's close in the Senate race and this ends up being the thing, but this should be an equal opportunity prob yeah, problem. Yeah, this isn't right? uh, affecting only Democrats. This isn't, it's, you know, both parties are equally affected by this, so. They're just more Democrats than Republicans on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Um, Alexa, there have also been some other voting concerns in the last week or so, including on college campuses. Um, the latest issue was at Texas State University, where Hayes County commissioners voted recently to expand voting hours on campus. Uh, why? What was going on there? So, you know, as part of the enthusiastic turnout that's marked this midterm election, which is pretty unusual for Texas, um, there has been a lot of demand for polling locations, especially on college campuses. Uh, Texas State students were limited to three days of voting on, on campus, and the lines were an hour and a half long. Um, Prairie View A&M was also limited to on-campus voting until the second week of early voting. There wasn't even any polling location in the city of Prairie View during the first week of early voting. And so, you know, these are sort of reflections of one, 
increased turnout and enthusiasm, at least in the early part of early voting. We're still not sure what that would look like at the end of early voting. Um, but two, also the fact that, again, elections are run at the local level and these decisions are made by, approved by the county commissioner's court, but also approved by the local leaders of each party. And so, you know, I don't know if this is the sort of thing where, you know, obviously there are concerns about voter suppression when you're talking about younger students who, you know, might tend to vote more lean democratic and what have not. But I think the issue here is how do we more efficiently run elections? And if this election cycle is any proof, we know that machines are a big issue and we know that access to early voting locations is a big issue, especially on college campuses. Well, since we're already talking about early voting, um, what do we know about the numbers at this point? Are they, uh, are we seeing historic levels? Is it too soon to tell since it's still early voting? What do we know? I mean, I think they are historic levels compared to the 2014 midterms. Um, early voting in Texas as of yesterday evening, I believe, um, passed the 3.35 million mark um, in the large, in the 30 counties with the most registered voters. Um, and so I think, you know, when you're talking about, or rather, there's a smaller number in 30 registered in the 30 counties, but we've hit that 3.3 million mark. Um, you know, I sort of hesitate to take too much from the numbers. Patrick and I were talking about this last week, how much you can actually read into it. Uh, but I think what's safe to say at this point is that this is a different electorate than is typical in midterms. It's closer to obviously a presidential level electorate. And we know that that electorate is more likely to be young and it's less likely to be incredibly white. And so whatever that means for the results, we'll have to wait and see, but it, it is definitely a different electorate. Alexa, can you just answer this question of, of who's winning or why we can't answer the question of, of who's winning at this point? Everyone wants to look at these early voting numbers and, and say, right, it's indicative of one thing or another. answer about whether my side or the other side is ahead. You follow this stuff closely more than anyone yeah. else. Well, I mean, I think one we can't actually track who is voting by race. I mean, you have local folks who are sort of crunching the numbers. By political race. Political, yeah. 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 Um, by political race or even yeah. by you know, right. ethnic race. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, there's just no way. And so um, there, are, there are folks who can sort of crunch the numbers and see, okay, this person who typically votes Republican right. has already voted, though obviously we still don't know what their votes will look like. Yeah. And so, you know, I think obviously we've seen both folks, both parties, people on both sides of the aisle excited about these numbers, sort of making the case that they will benefit for benefit them. But there's really no way of knowing. Um, you know, even if you are looking at someone who has voted Republican their entire life, there's no way of knowing that they've actually voted Republican this year as well. And so um, it's, it's one of those things that people sort of look at the numbers and try to pull things from. But, you know, beyond looking at new voters, which is something that you can sort of see clear cut if you've got the massive voter file to right. compare to. Um, there's not a whole lot that you can take away from increased turnout at the moment, unless you've got some sort of database that you're projecting things off of. Right. Well, despite that, both uh, O'Rourke and Cruz are trying to, you know, basically like take credit for it. I mean, sure. Patrick, you had a story this week about both of them thinking it will benefit them. Yeah, as you would somewhat expect. I mean, O'Rourke obviously is encouraged just by the overall increase in the raw number of people participating in the process. Um, I think he would also probably be encouraged by what Alexa was just describing, which is some of the analysis that I've seen is that the percentage of early voters who don't have an uh, election history, who you know, are, are effectively first-time voters or haven't voted in the like, most recent eight elections, I think is the count, that number is up over 2014 or that percentage is up. Clearly, you know, a path to victory statewide for Democrat in Texas, uh, you know, 
needs to include bringing new people into the process or expanding the electorate. And so I'm sure he's encouraged uh, by that number. Uh, Cruz also said he was, uh, you know, very, very encouraged and that he felt that, you know, this complacency problem that he had um, at the beginning of the cycle was beginning to fade away as you look at these numbers. Um, and he's probably looking at some of the analysis that shows that, uh, you know, the you know Republican primary voters, people who have voted in one or more Republican primary previously, um, are so far outnumbering or having a larger share of the, the early vote than Democratic primary voters. Um, so, but like Alexa said, I mean, a lot of this is you know, um, not to be too cynical, but you know, cherry picking evidence that kind of fits your argument. There's a number of different metrics each side can kind of latch onto and say this you know benefits me. Um, but I, I did think it was a little notable that Cruz was so uh, optimistic about the early vote numbers because this whole campaign for him has been about trying to rally his base around the idea that the other side is, you know, out, you know, more energized, turning out in numbers uh, that we've never seen before, willing to crawl over glass, as he said at the beginning of this cycle. Um, and so for him, for him to sound uh, an optimistic note on that was was somewhat notable for me. I thought he would have used it to try to uh, get people, you know, kind of light, continue to light, light a fire, a fire. on their people. I mean, I want to try to connect a couple of dots, and you can tell me if I'm connecting these dots wrong, because I am curious. My husband and I were talking about this last night. If early voting numbers are looking more like presidential years, and presidential years tend to draw out people who are more first-time voters, right, you know, or not traditional voters, that's part one. Part two is the polling numbers continue to show that the Senate race is looking like a little bit tighter and a little bit tighter. It's, you know, 6%, 5%. There was a poll today that's 4%. And those, that 4%, that poll is of likely voters. Those are people who we know have voted before. So given that the race could be a four-point spread according to polling of likely voters, and we know that there are all these people coming to vote who are unlikely voters, does that mean this race could be much closer than a 4% spread? I mean, I don't think that the polling will pan out come, you know, close of, ele of election boxes on November 6th. I, because of that fact, the fact that we are polling off of likely voters and this is an unlikely election in so many ways. And so I do, I, I am skeptical that some of these numbers will hold up, at least when you look at the electorate. That said, even if this is a 2016-like electorate or a presidential year electorate, Republicans continue to win Texas in those years. Right, I mean, Donald Trump won Texas right. by nine points in right. 2016. And sure, it was a closer margin right. than in previous elections, but you know, the, the Democrats' raw number of votes haven't quite caught up, even in a presidential year. Am I saying that that's going to keep them from winning anything this year? No. Um, I think particularly in down-ballot races, that's where you're going to I was going to say, them. this is where the congressional races, I think, are, are the most revealing. If we get to 2016-level turnout, that's a big open question. You know, in 2016, we don't have anything to go off of because Democrats didn't have an opponent. Right. Pete Sessions didn't have an opponent in 2016. And so we know what happened in his district at the presidential level in 2016. So I think it's, you know, though that's where I'm most interested in. If we're hitting the 2016 early vote turnout or overall turnout in Texas uh, in these congressional races, I think that's, that's where the, you know, results will be the most revealing, I think, especially Alex, with strong, yeah. well-funded uh, challengers. Alex, do you think a lot of people are just waiting to vote until election day, or do you think there has been so much move for early voting that early voting is like really cannibalizing what election day turnout might be? Uh, that's a hard question. I'd say there is definitely a lot of, uh, you know, people going out for early voting, but it's hard to 
say so what election day looks like. All these questions like. are like landmines. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying well, to get you guys. Yeah. I'm just trying to get you guys <laughs> to stumble yeah, yeah. and weigh yeah. in and <laughs> make. Um, I will say I'd like to vote on election day, and so I am one of those voters who, despite the enthusiasm, won't vote until next Tuesday. Alexa likes waiting in long lines. You heard it here first. All right, well, that's all the time we have this week. If you've listened this long, you must really love the Trib Cast. Uh, please do us a solid and take a moment to tell a friend, just one friend, about the show today. Pause, text your friend, shoot them an email, post on your social media accounts, tell them to check out the TribCast. Thanks to the Texas Living Water Project, the Association of Rural Communities in Texas, the Texas Farm Bureau, and the Texas Rural Water Association. You may uh, determine a theme there. Uh, for our sponsors this week, and special thanks to Spoon for our amazing and brand new theme music. On behalf of Patrick, Alex, Alexa, and our producers, Michael Ray and Bobby, this is Emily. Thanks for listening. Thanks.